Are you in charge of your own digital identity? How do you share verifiable information about yourself on the internet? Our guest for today sheds light on the modern world's approach to digital identity as we talk about the different domains of identity, how our identities are currently held and managed by corporations, civil society, and governments, and why we should advocate for the rights of our digital selves. We also unravel the definition of self-sovereign identity and dive into how having a decentralized identity framework can impact the way we interact with technology and ultimately society's trust models and democracy. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Welcome to episode 34 of Coding Over Cocktails. My name is Kevin Montalbo. Joining us from Sydney, Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. G'day, Kevin. All right. And our guest for this episode, I'm very excited to introduce to you, the Identity Woman. She has spent the last 20 years of her career focused on one thing, supporting the emergence of an identity layer of the internet that works for and empowers people. She is an internationally recognized expert in self-sovereign or decentralized digital identity, authoring two books, A Comprehensive Guide to Self-Sovereign Identity in 2018 and Domains of Identity in 2020. She also co-founded the Internet Identity Workshop in 2005 to bring together technologists who want to see decentralized identity come into being. Joining us today for a round of cocktails is Kalia Young. Hi, Kalia. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails. And you just had a sip there. Of, uh, we're just uh, so curious. Much. Yeah, <laughs> we're just curious what you were drinking because this is coding over cocktails after all. What am I drinking? I am drinking uh, like um, probably two tablespoons of kombucha and a giant glass of water. <laughs> all right. That's not a cocktail. That doesn't class as a cocktail. <laughs> it's watermelon flavored kombucha. It's very cocktail-like. I must is say. it? Okay. <laughs> We have had guests bring cocktails onto the onto the show, so uh, it, that's uh, fine. Kombucha is fine as well. Let's get started with the questions. Before we dive into the technicalities of digital identity and decentralized digital identity, maybe we should define it first. So, uh, you know, I was speaking to my wife about digital identity in this upcoming podcast, and as a complete layman, she's like, what is my digital identity? So perhaps you could explain it to her. Sure. Um so I think of it, digital identity is actually really complex, right? So um, when we started out back in the good old days of, of, of the Internet Identity Workshop, we were really approaching it from the perspective of like consumers on the Internet showing up and connecting to a place like Yahoo or, you know, Web 2.0 is just emerging. So all of those sort of the usernames and passwords that you have to connect with different accounts is one shape of a digital identity. And then one of the challenges has been that because of that paradigm of like you getting an account from lots of places, um, you could think of your phone number as a type of digital identity. It's an identifier in a network. And when you call it, it rings you an email address, the same thing, but all of those have 
this pyramid structure where you're getting your identity identifier for that particular context from the context and they could take it away from you. And we were asking how could we show up with sort of our own autonomous digital identity in cyberspace that we could carry with us between different websites. That turns out to be a kind of hard problem that I think we've got a lot of um, promising emerging solutions for with SSI, but um, it's just a different paradigm of like, it's more like how do I have a digital body that I control in a similar way to how I control my physical body in physical space. And that's what we were setting out to do with sort of our original work at the Internet Identity Workshop. So let's talk about the, the workshop. You, you co-founded that in 2005. You describe it as an unconference. It's the first time I've heard of an unconference, which you might describe to us what an unconference is. But you've since gone on in that conference to just define the at least the backbone of standards such as OAuth 2 and OpenID Connect. Did you ever imagine that this workshop and this passion for uh, digital identity was going to have such a global impact when defining standards like those, where, which are used, you know, every organization in the world pretty much now? Um, in a way, that was our goal, right? We wanted to change how digital identity worked. And at the time, you had enterprise identity and access management and sort of corporate federation as your only model. And... We were very idealistic with sort of some of the design ideas of what OpenID could be that it didn't necessarily become, but it made it better than you having an account, a separate account everywhere, right? Like consumer federation wasn't really possible before. Um, you know, some people told us after we succeeded with both like OAuth and OpenID, like declare victory, go home. And we're like, yeah, but we still haven't figured out this problem of how do I you know, have my digital me with me that's really mine and can't be just taken away because someone decides I no longer um, have an account. And for people who are listening who may not know is every time you kind of go and log in with Google or log in with Facebook, you're using OpenID and OpenID, like OpenID Connect and OWASP underneath. But ultimately, with that big identity provider, as we call Google or Facebook in that scenario, they can take your identity away. And I have thought, I mean, I often call myself an advocate for the rights and dignity of our digital selves. And that digital self, like we have a lot of, we have hundreds of years of common law and civil law legal practice around how it's not okay to like, hurt someone's physical self or kill them. Well, if Google takes away my digital identity, what recourse do I have? Zero, because I have a, a TOS contract with them that says they're allowed to do that. Um, and I think as the digital becomes more and more important, that paradigm doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense anymore. Like why should they have the right to terminate my digital representation? So when you were uh, coming up with these concepts in your conference, which as I understand the unconference concept is that there's no set agenda and it's like these open discussions where, you know, uh, topics can just bubble to the top and let's, you know, throw some you know, world experts on that topic and see what problems we can solve. Yeah. Is that right? Is that, is that the yeah. gist of the unconference? So, so it's, yes, almost. I mean, I think um, what is we have a schedule. We actually have rooms 
uh, when we're in person and digital rooms when we're virtual and we have time slots. But what, right. what, what we don't do is we don't decide who should speak when about what ahead of time. So in the opening morning or whatever time zone you're in now that we do it virtually, um, we literally sit in a big circle and people get um, card stock and markers in real life. And some of them do that in digital form too, and name the, the name, the topic they want to discuss. And it could be presenting some work that they've worked on in a working group. It could be a, an idea. Um, I remember one particularly poignant um, idea was put on the wall. It was cloud LDAP question mark with a, you know, and two years later, that was a working standard. Uh, it became skim which is the the connection between sort of cloud enterprise services and LDAPs, right? Um, so it's a way for people to put out things and discuss and, and talk about anything they want that's relevant to the industry or or beyond. I mean, we've had sessions about like Buddhism and identity and, you know, what is the mean, you know, so the good thing is we've made space within our technical community because of this format to hold some of the deeper philosophical and meaning questions that I think as soon as you start getting close to identity, you end up touching, right? And we don't say, oh, no, they're not welcome. They're totally welcome on the wall. And whoever's moved to go to those sessions goes. So there's another set of things with open space. The, the method of our unconference is open space technology, and it has four principles, which is whoever comes are the right people, whenever it starts is the right time, whenever it's over, it's over. And, um, oh no, oh, God, I forgot, <laughs> I'm just like, whatever happens is the only thing I could have, including me forgetting that one, okay. And then there's a law, which is the law of motion and responsibility, which says, if you're not learning or contributing in this session, it's your responsibility to respectfully find someplace else to go. And so with that, your people are in charge of their own happiness at the event. And if they don't like a session, they don't run to the organizer and go, I don't like it because the organizer didn't schedule it, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> just go to some other room where you think you might enjoy the conversation and like leave the folks who are happy in that room alone and don't bring your, your so we make a norm of like moving between space that's like slightly different than the default western culture way of kind of being at an event where you're like being polite and staying and yeah right and you mentioned that there's also a philosophical debate and presumably a like an ethical debate is you know how is this standard we're proposing going to mature so with something like open id connect and and the potential was must have been there to see that you're handing over your identity to global giants which could you know, federate your identity across. No, because that wasn't the original design ideas. Okay. Big companies came and like made it theirs. <laughs> um, and there's actually a great presentation by Aaron um, Hammer Lahav, which I'll dig up and you can put it in your show notes where he is one of the grassroots developers of OAuth and was like, Basically, it was I'm quitting OAuth and why? 
And part of it was he felt abandoned by grassroots developers who chose to not continue in the process when the giant company showed up and sort of made it go their direction. And no, he was there, but like everyone else was like, oh, you'll take care of it. And he couldn't, he couldn't keep it on a different path by himself. So it's, so it's heavier than it might've been. It's the original vision was that the original, original OpenID talked about at the very, very first IIW, which is in 2005, was like each human on the planet would have their own URL and you sort of log into your URL every time and everywhere. But normal people don't understand that they own could own a URL and they should authenticate against it. I mean, it worked for live journal users, which is where the first the first OpenID before OpenID merged four different things that were similar. But the the our idealism was not eventually realized in the final standards as they are and i just heard from someone that the new executive director of the open id foundation doesn't even know what user-centric is and i was like uh that's kind of not great right <laughs> so well that's why we're on to the new set of protocols that have flown through flowed from the internet identity workshop uh, and obviously you're uh, a big, big advocate for um, maintaining and controlling your own digital identity. So why is this important? Why should we control our own digital identity? Because it's too important to delegate to giant corporations or governments. Hmm. Now, you mentioned governments because we talked about corporate, corporations today, but uh, uh, I was thinking while you're talking, there are some forms of ID which were tr in traditional forms of identification, such as a driver's license, I now carry around my driver's license on my phone. And so it's now a digital form of ID, right? So governments with their, with their uh, health and security numbers and you know, Medicare numbers as we have in Australia, um, these are all becoming digital identifiers, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so how those systems work in a way that put people at the center and not the government at the center is I think one of the critical things for the next five years that we need to really work with governments on. So governments are an authoritative source of information about people. Um, I was born in the province of British Columbia in Canada. And so British Columbia is the authoritative source of my birth date and the name on my birth certificate and the you know location of my birth. That's, that's that they're the authoritative source. So the question is, how can I get that information from that government and then use it other places because other places want to know my name and date of birth? Should the system be architected in a similar way that OpenID is architected, where the identity provider is the province of British Columbia and every time I want to share my birth date, they have to phone home to that identity provider of the province to find it out and believe it's true? Well, if that's the case, then the government is becoming this like hub that I have to go to all the time and it knows everywhere I share my birth date. And that's none of their business, even though they're the authoritative source of it. Some and I should want to make it their business though, right? <laughs> well, this is the thing. And this is one of the big, that's why I said in the next five years, it's really important to us to do more work with governments to say, yes, you are authoritative. We are not trying to end your power to issue birth certificates to your citizens or issue driver's licenses to them or issue barber licenses. To, like, 
in the state of California, there's 150 different licensure things. Great. Keep doing that. But it doesn't make sense if I, as a citizen, need to prove those things that the government's in the way of all those sharings. And that's kind of what the, the decentralized identity architecture is about, is that the individual is the pivot point for federation sharing, not the entities that hold the information or are the authoritative source. Got it. You've written a book, Domains of Identity. Uh, it guides readers through complex identity challenges, and you synthesized 900 academic articles to write this. So first of all, how do you amass 900 academic articles and then synthesize them into a book? So, okay, here's the, the real deal. So I, I was in, um, I was in, a, a, I have a master's degree in identity management and security from the University of Texas at Austin. And it was an interesting journey going through that program. And it was done in a way where we had basically one weekend of classes a month. So we would do two classes at a time and we'd have like, you know, uh, four hour block, two days in a row in each of those classes, right? And we'd go, that took us two whole years of one class a month to complete 10 units um, or 10 classes. I don't know how many units is, but like that was the master's degree. and. During that time, you could either fly to Texas to go to class in person, or you attended on Zoom. And I went to Texas about a third of the time, and the other two thirds I was on Zoom. And I was like, I have access to a T1 library, right? Like a top tier university library. I better use my time to extract from the library all the things that are gonna cost me money next year when I need to access the library. So I. While I was in class on Zoom, I could have the library up and I'd be searching ah. <laughs> for all sorts of, cause I was like this, I gotta find the identity literature, right? Just for my own interest. And also like to try and understand what's out there. The literature is horrible, by the way, because so much of like the, you know, the community around IAW has a thriving intellectual community that's largely on people's blogs. They're not writing academic articles, but their blog posts or some of them are intellectually like keystone for our community. So, but, but, and then academics don't like research people's blogs, like what's a blog, right? You know, so there's this disconnect between the academic world and then the implementation world of identity. So I downloaded all these articles and I had a, ta-da of insight to start the domains, which was we were in a cohort class. So we had the same group of 12 students taking like each. So our teachers were new, but the students were. And so by the time we're at class like six, this professor walks in, they're like, let's talk about what identity is. And we're like, oh my God, not this first class again. Because <laughs> like they all said that, right? And we're like, we've had this conversation. You're new. And then the conversation is like lumping all this stuff together. So there's, you know, innumerable um, identity thefts issues like the, the target HVAC attack that leaked for 4 million credit card numbers or, you know, issues of biometrics and like, should, should they be part of our government IDs and should they be checked at borders? 
great questions, but like HVAC attacks in your customer center and should you have biometrics at the border, both identity management questions in completely different domains, but in these conversations, they kept getting mushed together like, and I was like, stop it. <laughs> like, they're not all the same. So, yeah, so you, broke, you broke things down into 16 domains, yeah. right? Yeah, I did. So I had the insights, I saw the domains, and then I sifted through all of those articles to find which ones applied to which domains. And then I read all the ones for that domain and I summarized it. And some had almost no articles and I wrote something anyways, and some had huge literatures. So the domains start with me and my identity, and then you and my identity. So delegated identity, because you I don't know if you're a parent, but if you are, you're stewarding the identities of your children while they're growing up, right? Or if you have elder parents, you're helping them with their identities or disabled folks who can't, right? Like, so there's delegated identity and it's rarely built into the systems, but it's a critical part of being human. And then you have a grid that is transactions, registration and surveillance. And then you have columns that are government, which is like getting your IDs from the government. You have civil society, which is healthcare, education, unions, sports teams, religion, big category, but commercial, which is like buying and selling stuff like your washing machines or your car or whatever, like commercial. And then employment, because so much of identity management is around managing employee identity and it's its own big category. And then all of that feeds down into the data broker industry, which is buying and selling information, which is disconnected from the meat, you know, the humans, people at the top. And then all of the, everything, everything I've just described is all potentially attackable by bad actors and sold in the illicit market. And so I'm guessing by identifying these domains, it makes it easier if you exist in that domain or you're interacting with that domain to start identifying the issues associated with that domain. Yes, exactly. Okay. Right. <laughs> so your That's... book dives into these domains and the challenges associated with each of those domains. Yeah, it doesn't get too much into the challenges. I left that for the next book or other people to write, but it was definitely like, this is what this, this is the shape of this domain. And this is what we need to think about and to understand it. Yeah, right. Sounds like it could kick off some topics at the next IWW. <laughs> yeah. Self-sovereign identity. Um, what are the problems self-sovereign identity are trying to solve? So we've touched on some of those today. Yes. I think a great one for where we are now and, and sort of relating it to the domains is this question of vaccine, um, proof of vaccine and being able to share it so you can go on an international flight and travel. And that use case ends up bringing together several domains that typically don't touch each other. So I, as when I get on an airplane, I. I'm not taking a medical file with me normally, ever. It's just not relevant. I might say if I had some weird thing that I wanted to tell a flight attendant about, but like no one's by default sharing any medical information with airlines. The same is true with governments when I land with a passport, although it might be different if I'm an immigrant. Like I have immigrated to the United States. I had to go to a medical checkup to get 
my um, my permanent residency here. But that's sort of like also not like an everyday thing. It's a special thing for these particular things. But when we're talking about potentially in the coming year, every international flight you take, you need to prove to the country you're landing in that yes, you're vaccinated and potentially also, yes, I took a COVID test a day before I got on the plane because you can carry the disease even if you're vaccinated, but you just don't really get sick, right? So like, yes, and um, how do you, how do we create a system where I can easily take that little tiny piece of medical information from a medical context and put it into a travel context in a way that's as privacy preserving as possible, that shares the least amount of information and puts the individual as the pivot point because I don't want the airline calling my healthcare record system but how else do they know it's true? So the verifiable credentials technology gives any issuer the ability to sign, cryptographically sign information that they, they give to you in a digital form and you can present it to any requester, any verifier that you want um, based on what you're trying to do. And it's up to you to share it and not up to the, the airline to connect to your medical system you have the power to share it without you're the you're the the point of federation there are so many st massive stakeholders involved around identity like so when you talk about health records and i immediately think of you know apple's vault on on your iphone to, to yeah. which will hold your health records mm -hmm. now intentionally otherwise it's holding identifiable records around your around your health and it could mm -hmm. easily hold your vaccination records for example yeah. um, now they may not you know be intentionally trying to commercialize your health records or otherwise it could be just being good citizens but there's still a large entity which is involved in this uh, management of identity and then you have obviously government and then those which maybe want to commercialize your identity like Facebook and all these stakeholders how how do you manage that process when you're trying to how, when you're trying to create this self sovereign identity that you have control over? Is it isn't it seem like ins, an insurmountable problem when you're dealing with these stakeholders and you know wrenching this information out of their hands to get control over yourself? Sure. So I think that there is um, the good thing is we have some pretty big stakeholders that are really excited about the technology. So I knew that we might be on to something when we had banks showing up and saying, this is really cool. Can we use this too? And we're like, for sure. They don't care two hoots about people controlling their own identity. They care that it's actually way more secure and it's usable public key PKI, public key encryption that it provides a way to get end users key material that they can use to log into banks in a usable way. And bonus, they could potentially bring verifiable credentials from a trusted entity with them. Or what else is happening right now, there's, you can go look it up. Uh, I believe it's called Member Pass. It was created by the credit union network in the United States to support credit unions issuing KYC information back to their customers to say like, yep, we checked this person's ID because we have to, because they're a customer of ours and this is their real information. So they could use it potentially to sort of fill out loan applications or do things like start, start engaging with buying a house or things like that. It's not like 
it's not like that's the only idea information those people will need, but it's like a doorway to like somebody checked something about this person so we can start talking to them in a way that's different than like we have no idea who they are. And, and presumably momentum will build. So you start with these particular use cases or domains and momentum will yeah. build around it. Well, and we have... We have in the US, we have US government funding and several provincial governments in Canada also funding the development of the technology because they as Western liberal democracies who value those values are like, we're authoritative sources and we don't wanna get anywhere near the transactions where people use their information because that is inappropriate for us to know. Mm. You mentioned democracy, and I was actually I was listening to one of the videos on the IIW website, and um, there was an interesting snippet at the tail end of it. Um, I, I don't have the uh, guest name, uh, the lady's name who mentioned this, but she talked about trust models and democracy. And she said, once we have this secure link between individuals, where those individuals can trust each other's identity, and the data is not owned or controlled by anyone else, it's going to have a significant impact on trust models and democracy in the future. And I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> like how, how this is fundamentally going to impact trust and democracy itself. And mm -hmm. can you elaborate on that concept a little bit more? Sure. I think that one of the interesting features about this technology is that peer-to-peer -peer aspect of it so that it means that with my software agent, I could connect your software agent, David, and yours, Kevin, and that the, there, yes, there's the software that I have as my agent, but it's a different relationship than I also have an account with the software agent, which is where we're at now with everything else, like with Google, et cetera, right? Like with WhatsApp, like every, app that I have, I have to have an account with the app that they control. And then I can connect to other people. So we're being disintermediated by the identity provider role that the app service is playing. And with with SSI, I can have my agent and connect to your agent using what's called a standard called um, DIDCOM, DID Communications. So that has a lot of potential to kind of shift that whole sort of connection between people. I think also in terms of, you know, supporting, potentially supporting greater integrity around voter rolls and managing them in more sensible ways. Um, but, you know, how do we know who people are and how do we connect to each other is, is you know, if we look at what's going on with, with, you know, social media and the issues with misinformation, disinformation, it's, it's at least I'm in the US, it's really screwing with democracy here. Yeah, and election results, it's tr the trust around our election results, right? Yeah. Um, so if the trust models are fundamentally different, then there's a real, very real case where the, the outcome of an election was up in the air based on whether we could trust whether this vote was coming from an individual or not. Right. And I actually think we have really solid voter systems. I actually wrote a report on this um, securing voter data systems. I'll, I'll share a link to it so folks can read it. it um, and it's a fascinating process. It's actually, I didn't really, as a non-voter myself, 
living in the United States and not being a citizen. Um, I didn't know about a bunch of things, including that the voter roll is public. And the reason it's public is so that you can know who the voters are. And somebody could go check and be like, are these real voters in this real place and sort of have integrity in the election because you know, you know who's on the list. You don't know how they voted, but that's, that's why it's public in a democracy. And I was kind of horrified that the whole list was public, but that's the, that's the, that's the trade-off we make for having confidence in these systems collectively. There are so many implications I can think, and I can think there's a bunch of uh, governments that perhaps wouldn't want to lose this control and have people in, in, in control of their own identity and be able to, to be accountable for their own voice and, and uh, their own identity associated with that voice. So I think I can see some real changes around, and it's going to be interesting how commerce could change when, when you know you can trust or, you know, uh, any, any type of transaction in a peer-to-peer scenario where those trust models are just taken away because you don't consider it anymore because you have um, this self-sovereign concept where it's, uh, you, you know, the person and the identity you're dealing with is legitimate. Right. Crime. Every, you know, there's so many. Well, so many I, I think in terms of like, this is one of the things that the Trust or IP Foundation is working on is, and what this technology provides for that, earlier identity technologies, including OpenID, do not provide for, which is mutual authentication, which is that the typically the person connecting to the website, other than sort of looking at the URL, isn't really able to confirm that the entity they're speaking with is really them, is really the entity they're intending to connect with, right? And that this technology provides not just a way for me me to prove who I am to the business, but vice versa, the business to be able to prove that they are the bank they claim to be hmm. when I'm connecting with them. And are they actually on the trust registry of banks in this jurisdiction? Oh, they're not. Well, I shouldn't trust them then. Yeah. The URL is not a foolproof system. You can easily hijack the DNS of the, of, of the end user and, and hijack the, the URL. So it's um, yeah. It's there's very clear, and 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 the system is working, but it's not, certainly not foolproof at the mm -hmm. moment. Uh, it's it's interesting. We're just in the such early days of this, right? Because we've had centuries and centuries or millennia to build our identity in the physical world, but what we're talking this has all evolved over what last twenty years. Yeah, and I have a new article I just finished, and hopefully it'll get published soon, talking about you know, this history of how accidentally digital systems built identity and also how accidentally we built physical identity systems and how they're really quite different. And then we tried to jam them together and they're, because they're so different, they kind of, things, it doesn't work. And that why self-sovereign identity actually gets you digital identity, but much more like how the paper identity systems evolved, right? Because when I get a paper document, I choose who to share it with. And whoever I'm sharing with typically trusts the security features on it as the kind of proof. Sometimes they call up the, the issuer like for a high profile job, did they really get the degree or what, you know what I mean? But 
And there is actually a lot of money spent for various businesses trying to do that type of identity checking. This is very disruptive to those businesses because I'll have the digital proof that it's real. Um, but that's okay. I think they need to innovate and find new opportunities with the change in, in the paradigm of how identity is going to work in the future. I was living in Hong Kong for the last six years and just moved back to Australia last year. I, I kid you not, they're still using rubber stamps in Hong Kong. <laughs> that this document is legitimate yet yeah, they won't accept it unless it's got a rubber stamp which you can go buy at a local market for a dollar <laughs> for some reason they cannot accept it unless it's got that you know rubber stamp on it it's, it's so the in the physical world whilst in any economies it has evolved uh it, 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 you know sophistication of uh, identity in some cases it hasn't evolved either we were just staggered how bureaucratic and old school and old world some of the systems were for what is regarded as one of the leading economies and you know, most dynamic economies in the world as well we will have to leave it there we've run out of time how can our listeners uh follow you on social media and what you're talking about and what you're doing Sure. Um, my handle on Twitter is Identity Woman. I also have a LinkedIn presence. I do not have a Facebook. I think I technically do, but I never go there. Facebook is against my religion. It's totally <laughs> evil. No. Um, I am on this new social network that one of the people who actually introduced me to digital identity has just built based on open standards. It's called True.net. So that is a fun, interesting new thing that people might want to explore because it's based on the open standards. And um, I totally encourage folks who want to learn more about the digital identity things we've discussed today to check out the um, credentials community group at the W3C, the Decentralized Identity Foundation, Trust Your IP Foundation, if you're interested in the COVID credentials work I talked about, that's at covidcredentialsinitiative.org. And um, we're coming out with a blueprint next week. So that'll be an interesting journey. So all the, and please join us at the next Internet Identity Workshop, which I don't know if it will be virtual or not, but we will continue to host virtual workshops. So that's an opportunity for folks all over the world to join us. Brilliant. Thank you so much for the work you do. Um, it's uh, and very, very interesting to talk to you today. Thanks, Dave. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers.